Now bring me the cat's ass. <laughs> so much ass right now. <laughs> Enterprise HR infraction log, 1,947,299.8. Pleasant surprise, this entry has nothing to do with Riker or one of his many dalliances with members of the crew, but rather Captain Picard, who has redefined the Federation's constitutional penalties for attempted murder, chalking it up to boys will be boys. <laughs> you know what? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going to put in my transfer request. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Reengage, where we rewatch TNG, a show we loved when we were younger, and now reengage episode by episode to see if it holds up to older eyes. Tonight, we re-engage with Season 4, Episode 4, Suddenly Human. Let's say hello to the re-engage bridge crew. Miss Kate, how you do? Suddenly human has been <laughs> in my mind. I'm so excited. Uh, this episode uh, has another young Kate Yeager crush uh, in it. Uh, the moment uh, that he appeared up, I was like, oh my gosh! All of the feelings. <laughs> so I'm excited. Eric, how you doing? I'm feeling suddenly human, which is the joke I made last week when I was looking at my wrong notes, but Jimmy made a horrified face, so I about turned and got the right notes right in front of me as quickly <laughs> as I could. So a week late, I would like to belatedly thank you for that, Jimmy G. You are welcome, sir. Eric, I mean, Eric, well done. <laughs> Ah. Well said. Thank you. Great. How you doing? <laughs> well, I'm just going through my old issues of Tiger Beat and uh, trying to figure out who who this co-star was because uh, it looked darn familiar. I can't wait. Oh yeah. Well, Eric will let us know. Yes, I will. Uh, all right. Suddenly, human is on the docket. That was star date four four one four three point seven, which was the week of October fifteenth. 1990. Greg, tell us what was happening around uh, the world that time. Well, on October 15th, uh, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev won the Nobel Peace Prize. He was selected because of all of his efforts in basically dismantling his country. Uh, it's kind of amazing that he got elected uh, as the president of the USSR and introduced perestroika and glasnost to concepts to reform communism and bring back some more liberal policies to that country. And then it directly led to the fall of it, as we've uh, been talking about here. But uh, the, the Nobel 
selection committee gave it to him and him alone. Uh, he did not share this Peace Prize with anyone uh, because of his efforts and what he had done. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and not to be outdone in the world of war, on October 16th, uh, it is reported that the United States forces reached 200,000 in the Persian Gulf as part of Operation Desert Shield. They eventually got up to more than 600,000 troops in the area and coalition forces nearing 1 million before the, uh, the switch was flipped on to Operation Desert Storm. Uh, but this date marked, uh, oh yeah, there's a lot of folks there, uh, a lot of folks who got reinstated. Um, this was a National Reserve, uh, the, uh, sorry, the U.S. Army National Reserve was activated for the first time since the Korean War. I was going to say Vietnam War because I'm like, oh yeah, that was the biggest thing. But no, it was, they didn't even do that during the Vietnam War. It was only during the Korean War that the, na uh, the National Reserve was called up. So, uh, October 16th, also, the Reds, the Cincinnati Reds, beat the Oakland A's uh, in a shutout, 7-0. to zero. But the important part there is that it ended Oakland's 10-game postseason winning streak. They had swept the Red Sox, as we mentioned, uh, and they had uh, swept another team. Uh, and then they <laughs> had won, uh, I guess, two games of the World Series before the Cincinnati Reds uh, were able to defeat them once. And so that was a... That was a pretty handy feat mm. and that was what was happening in the world we got we got peace we got war we got baseball what else do you need <laughs> nothing all right thank you greg kate uh sing for us sweet nightingale uh well we've got uh <laughs> thank you wow i love that uh <laughs> i've never been called a sweet nightingale before um well the oh. song is one that i did not know and uh is somewhat a melodic uh it's praying for time by george michael uh this mm. is from his listen without prejudice um uh volume one uh and i was drawn in by the lyrics the rich declare themselves poor and most of us are not sure if we have too much but we'll take our chances because god stopped keeping score which I was like, damn, that's pretty intense for a George Michael song. And then I remembered that that was when he was sort of like at his most, um, like opening up his rib cage to be like, see who I am as a person. Uh, mm. So yeah, that was uh, during his more intense moments. Uh, Freedom. That's right. Was that, that album, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Freedom 90 uh, was the that's name right, of that song. That's right, because it was 1990. That's right. Uh, Marked for Death continued to be number one. Uh, on the Fuck theater yeah. front, uh, Jackie Mason, brand new, opened at the Neil Simon New York City for 216 performances. And, oh, the, orig yeah. and the original production of Once on This Island opened at the Booth Theater for 469 performances. And nice. in legal news, I like to bring it all. We've been talking about this case for quite some time, but three members of Two Live Crew were acquitted on obscenity charges in Florida. So that kind of puts an ending on that story that we've been following. Way to go, Luther. How can there be three members of two live crew? I'm so confused. Well, Kate, some call it Amtrak, some call it a train. <laughs> and that's a little what's bit happening. of sodomy humor there. <laughs> you need a, a little parental advisory sticker on Jimmy's forehead today. <laughs> Oh, it's going to get worse. 
All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, <laughs> the directors and writers and some nemesic files, and then we will hand it over uh, for the rest of the hour to Eric. <laughs> no! <laughs> I'm not prepared! <laughs> All right, so our director is uh, uh, Gabriel Beaumont. Our writers are John Welpley and uh, Ter uh, Jerry Taylor. Um, uh, she was a co-writer. And uh, fun fact about Jerry, she knew almost nothing about Star Trek when she was brought on. Uh, but she had done a lot of uh, line producing work for shows like Quincy, In the Heat of the Night, uh, and Jake and the Fat Man. Um, and especially Heat of the Night, which was known for taking on uh, big social topics head on. Uh, you can kind of see the influence, I think, on this episode uh, in particular. Uh, and to get ready for this, she, um, she just binged on all things Star Trek. She watched every single episode of TOS and TNG in all the movies up until this point mm. uh, to sort of get her up to speed to where she needed to be to start writing uh, for this episode. And that is, in fact, the first bullet point of the Larry Nemesic Files. Uh, uh, number two, um, the Tolarian spaceship, um, the Tolarian space is actually adjacent to Federation space uh, and opposite of uh, where the Klingons and the Romulans uh, have their space. Um, and the uniform, a little bit of uniforms history here, based on uh, the video that we will see in an upcoming episode of Family, uh, and a video we see in this episode, we can narrow it down that the switch from the TOS movie style uniform into the TNG style uniform happened sometime after Wesley's birth in the filming or the video taken of Jonah's parents on uh, on whatever that plan is where they where they destroyed. So about 13 years uh, before this episode took place is when that uniform uh, switch happened. The uh, nice. the actual name of the Tolarian species was started off to be the um, Fajarians, but it was suggested that maybe we use a species just barely mentioned uh, at the start of ep uh, an episode in, I think, season two, Heart of Glory. If you don't remember that, that's when um, the three Klingon rebels, they take over a Tolarian ship. They send out a distress call. Another Klingon ship shows up to help them out, and when they lower the shields, they destroyed it, and they pretended like they were just on the ship. They get they come on uh, the Enterprise, and that's the guys who are like talking to Worf about you know we got to reinvigorate the Klingon spirit, and they take over the ship, and uh, Worf ends up killing Chorus, uh, who was the commander of that that little group. So that was a Tolarian ship, uh, and they had some badass uh, mercantile Merculite rocket on that Tolarian ship that uh, destroyed the Klingon ship, and that sort of gives us reason how. They couldn't take on the Enterprise, but they uh, weren't full-hearted thinking that they might have a chance of at least doing some damage uh, to to them. So that's the Nemesic Files for this week. Eric, how do you want to handle the uh, guest stars this week? Well, I'm going to say fuck off to everybody but Jono and Kat Mendar there. And uh, <laughs> we'll spend our time first off on Sherman Howard, who mm. played Kat Mendar of the Tolarian empire you know big dude big dude um he did a lot of work uh he hasn't made it huge but my gosh 121 credits 
uh, just on IMDb. Uh, he's had a badass time. Uh, genre royalty and things like Day of the Dead, uh, Zombie Aficionados will know him as Bub from there. Uh, and from uh, moving in from there, he's been in everything from Lethal Weapon 2 to that original Stand miniseries. Uh, a lot of Seinfeld, or not a lot of Seinfeld, a lot of the shows you've seen before, uh, at least one episode in things like The Blacklist, Madam Secretary, Seinfeld, Person of Interest, Law and Order, uh, Las Vegas, uh, video games like Jack 2, Devil May Cry 2, Red Faction 2, Dude Loves Sequels, <laughs> Summoner sequels. 2, uh, Star Trek Armada 2. The guy, <laughs> the guy has done a lot of uh, video game sequels. Uh, Batman Beyond, he did voiceover stuff for. The Secret Files of the Spy Dogs. The man has done an extreme number of voiceover gigs throughout his uh, career, as you can tell from this episode, where I think his choice of being still, but super commanding with his voice and his performance was a really, really interesting one. Um, he's he'd been in just about every TV show you can imagine throughout his entire career, but once he started doing... Um, voiceovers in the mid-90s. It was kind of over for the rest of it. Um, but I really recommend you take a look kind of throughout. Uh, he was Lex Luthor in that Superboy uh, series that we all watched from 89 to 92. If you remember, he'd be in the middle of that right now. Uh, it really, really a good time. Um, so that's, that's all I got for him. Fantastic, because we got to move on and talk about... Uh, Kate's favorite actor of the late 80s and current favorite clinical psychologist since he retired about 10 years ago, um, Chad Allen. Uh, actor, retired, as we mentioned, clinical psychologist and gay rights icon, Chad Allen, on the cover of The Advocate no fewer than three times in his career. Uh, he was known primarily as one of the leads in Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, but he's in genre fare such as Terror Vision, if you go back and watch one of the founding vehicles of 80s uh, horror. Terror Vision is worth your time. And of course, Our House, he played young David Witherspoon, a show that I watched with my grandmother down in the basement every week. We didn't keep her there. She had an apartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's where we watched Our House and Father Dowling Mysteries. And... Uh, Kate, what, what are your specific memories of Mr. Chad Allen once he once you saw his face up in this particular episode? Yeah, Our House was the one. I that I loved yeah. that show. I remember there was a episode where uh, there was an earthquake and it was he was in peril. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, gotta save him. Yeah, and then of course Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Um, I did not realize that he had retired. Good for him. Yeah, uh, he had been an activist uh, kind of his whole career. Yeah. And um, I went back to school to get his uh, degree in clinical psychology. And that is where he's working these days. Uh, probably feels just great about retirement, as most actors that <laughs> I know who, who, who get there do. Um, but uh, yeah, fantastic career all the way through. At the same time he was doing Our House, he was doing Saint Elsewhere. A um, lot of uh, sequels for this young man as well. Star Trek The Next Generation, of course, being one. Uh, also, uh, he did the sequel to um, 
where Love Boat, which if you remember, was called Love Boat The Next Wave. <laughs> and of course, there was My Two Dads, one of the great sequels, uh, after, of course, my dad uh, years before. Uh, he was, of course, one of the kids in My Two Dads uh, because he was one of the kids on everything. He was on Webster. He was on Punky Brewster. The dude was the kid in every goddamn thing. The TV movie version of The Bad Seed. My oh. goodness, what a career. Continuing now, helping the world as no actor ever has. Uh, <laughs> The great Chad Allen played Jono in this particular episode, and uh, I think it's time we uh, we started discussing. All right, let's do that. So, well, we, I know, oh, one 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 note though, just because you mentioned St. Saint Elsewhere, and we have also mentioned Tommy Westfall on this podcast many times. That's who he played. He played Tommy Westfall, the guy who we are all inside Chad Allen's uh, universe. Yeah, we are. My goodness, the autistic kid. Yeah. 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 Who had a snow globe and and, and yeah. shook it? Wow, one of the worst series finales ever. <laughs> Remember all those Slash people fast. you cared about? Fuck you. <laughs> As always, I agree with Jimmy. So we open on an abandoned ship uh, in some backstory from Data. Two hundred nineteen lo- lives lost due to uh, the Talarian's low cunning. I think this is important because the low cunning is associated with them doing a distress call, people lowering their shields, and them killing them. Uh, this happened over three days, uh, and this is exactly what the Cleons replicated in uh, Heart of Glory. So I don't know if the writers got that confused. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, you know, maybe. Uh, um, our, our writer Jerry Taylor didn't quite do enough <laughs> of the binge watching to understand that that was a Klingon ploy and not a Talarian one. But or now that's they are why the Klingons did it. the ploy. It could be that's why the that. Klingons did the ploy. So only the other Klingon ship didn't know about the ploy. It can't well, be duh. true again. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, we get a little bit of that backstory uh, from them. Uh, so it's a you know, an, an ominous uh, introduction to these aliens that we're meeting, a ship in distress, maybe. Uh, and the Enterprise is the only ship close enough to lend a hand, but is it a trap? So, uh, what do you guys think about this 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 opening? It's a trap. The f- it's totally a trap. <laughs> and I thought the real trap was that uh, Mar- Marina Sirtis as a counselor, Diana Troy. That first shot, she's there. She's standing up in the tactical behind near Worf. And for some reason, she's so awkwardly positioned that I was like, she was told to be in that position in this weird way. Mm -hmm. She's angry uh, that she's there, I I think. She's not, she's she's acting in (laughs) such a way. She's like, why am I doing this? I don't know. Her, her her stance is really wide. It just it, none of it seems to make much sense. Uh, but I just, for some reason that was that stuck in my brain, and I kept on being like, "Huh, why is she up night near the tactical in this situation?" You, that doesn't. You think she's giving per- performance uh, protestation? She's yes, I think through performance. Yeah. Well, and this introduces new canon because uh, I was wondering why she shirked off her responsibilities as a counselor later in the episode, and now we know she was pissed off about having to work tactical earlier in the day. Uh, yeah. So this is some get back at, uh, at Captain Picard. Thank you. My headcanon is that the actress was pissed that this wasn't her episode, as I was <laughs> talking to Kate earlier. I think she was like, this should be my episode. Why is it Picard again? Right. It's terrible. I, I, 
the very first time I was on set was on um, a soap opera, and the actor I was acting opposite was so angry to be on set that day that they held the script up in front of their face during their lines so they couldn't use any of the shit. And then they eventually just said, all right, everybody, thanks. <laughs> and my scene was over without ever getting usable footage. Wow. <laughs> Protestation. Yep. And that was Susan Lucci, everyone. Susan <laughs> Lucci. <laughs> it wasn't. But God, wouldn't it be great if it were? Going back to the, the the content of this opening, it is odd that they try to ramp up the tension about it being like could be a trap, could be death, everyone's gonna die, and then it is very quickly not that. I, 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 I'm not sure if it was really effective. And let's send some people over, right? Well, let's send like, every all the important people. Yeah, all the important people. Our chief medical officer, our head of security, our number two, uh, and then some well, other guy. Eventually, they gotta be creating room in the officer class for that one student a year they graduate. Uh, <laughs> the turnover is just not fast enough. All right, so we cut to a nice long shot of the Tularian ship, and we see the rescue party beamed aboard. Worf is the sole security officer among them, and I'm not doubting Riker as uh, a tough guy or his ability to handle the situation, but it's curious that after Data's pretty stark warning about the Tularians, that there's only one gold shirt amongst the crew. There's not a lot of apparent destruction on the ship, but there are several hurt teens and one of them is human, and suddenly we have our title. I see. Huh? That's How true. did he keep his hair so good looking with a helmet on? <laughs> well, even more importantly, first of all, it's just because he's Chad Allen, so, you know, answered. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, Crusher takes off his helmet, not worrying whatsoever about, you know, whether he has neck issues or stability. like he's lying there they don't know what's wrong with him and they're like let's just force this helmet off of his head all right so after the hair debacle uh we cut away to the opening credits so we come back and we find our suddenly human character in sick bay where the ship's counselor is reading patients medical files so somebody please call osha uh <laughs> and we learn the human's name is jono uh and he's escaped radiation burns uh, may have been beaten and has a weird thing about people taking off his gloves. What do you guys think about this intro to not only uh, Jono, but uh, the Tellarian teens in their beds, a wailing and a rocking? Y'all, my cat hates this episode, like, so <laughs> much. He was sitting there sleeping, and all of a sudden, those five young men started caterwauling, and he was, he took off. He was not happy about it. It happened the whole episode. This is definitely a two from my cat's uh, point of view. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, this sound is very uh, displeasing to me. I <laughs> do not want it. I turned it down. As soon as it came on, I was like, oh, 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 oh. Turn I don't want to hear this. I will, when it, go it goes away, when their mouths close, I'll turn it back up because I. it sounded too much like uh, like Jimmy's daughter screaming spot on <laughs> i think it's interesting they set up really interesting the lee and set up interestingly the uh respect that jono has for picard right because he's like trying to get everybody stop stop this right now and then finally he you know sort of issues a command and that stops them 
which I thought was a really interesting moment that then bears out and bears fruit uh, as we go forward. But I noted that in that I was like, oh, they have an, a, a respect for command. Well, and that's uh, a, it's sort of a counterpoint, not disagreeing, but it seems like they have a respect for the title. Yes. Yeah, it was. He tried to do the dad voice commands early and it didn't work. It wasn't until. You're right, Jimmy, that they said captain. Right. And he was like, oh, wait, captain. That's what, I, you know, and that's what he could can respect to. But you're right also, Kate, that I, I noted that in this, too. I'm like, oh, OK, he's got a he's got a thing for for authority. Like, he, he, you know, that's this what this culture is all about. Is, right. is respecting the, uh, the the chain of command from, you know, captain to father. It's very muddy for him. All right, so the scene ends with a, a communique coming in regarding Jono, but they don't say what it is, just that, uh, you know, this is uh, a message and um, you need to come in and uh, find out what it is. So a little tantalizing bit of information, and Worf takes uh, Jono by the shoulder, escorts him to quarters where he will be confined, uh, and immediately we launch into, uh, once they arrive at those quarters, uh, a, little, a little talking to between uh, um, Worf and Jono, uh, and we find out that Jono and the Talarians are, are chauvinistic. So much misogyny. <laughs> he have no regard for, for women. W- what about this scene and, and what we learn about you know Jono? Uh, uh, what do you guys think? What was your takeaways here? I liked actually that less about Jono in this, but Dwarf was a really interesting choice to have this be the first kind of calmer interaction that Jono has like I thought that was really interesting because they have obviously similar backstories right they were the single survivor of a particular species and Worf can speak to uh, that fish out of water feeling that Jono is is experiencing so much and he I I actually kind of love that the writing doesn't go there uh, it doesn't say like, well, I, this happened to me too, you know, but we as the audience know that and uh, it's all kind of brought together in that one line that that Worf has, which is, you are confused. <laughs> <laughs> and another perfect Dorn delivery. Yes. Dorn livery. <laughs> So it's at 9 minutes and 23 seconds we get our first ready room scene where we learn that Jono's grandmama is a big deal. Uh, But the family has some real bad luck. And Troy and JLP do a brilliant recreation of a Big Lebowski scene with Troy basically saying, his life is in your hands, dude. And McCard basically saying, don't say that, man. Don't don't say it. All right, fave Lebowski quotes. Kate, what's yours? Uh, it really ties the room together. <laughs> nice. Eric? Who's the fucking nihilist here? <laughs> Top that one, Greg. Uh, I, I mean, I'm going to just the, the motion of uh, letting the ashes go on the cliffside. Okay. That's, Not a quote, but thank you. That's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The quote associated with that would be, why is everything a fucking travesty with you, man? Uh, all right, so we just we learn about the grandma being uh, an admiral, and she's very excited that uh, her long lost, thought to be dead grandson is in fact alive. Let's just put a pin in that, uh, and we're gonna evaluate that a little bit later in the episode. So 
after that, we go into uh, the first attempts to tame Jono in Picard's quarters where he goes around touching all the old man stuff that, you know, young kids aren't supposed to touch <laughs> and, and doing kind of that odd couple, uh, I'm going to, you know, how do I become your father figure type of thing. What do we think about this I- I- introduction into it? I- I- and by the way, we learned that the whole glove thing isn't weird. It's just racist. He doesn't... Uh, <laughs> He doesn't want to pollute his hands by touching an alien. So he's a chauvinist and a racist. So it's really going his way in terms of being a likable person. If it wasn't well, for that hair, together, man. Historically, uh, misogyny being a uh, entry-level uh, shittiness that, that leads to so many others. Racism, it's a uh, gateway character flaw. It is. <laughs> Men's rights activist in the making here. Uh, I, I, I I didn't note that as much. I mean, obviously it was there, and I was like, okay, they're trying to build this up as, as like being a, a, a change that he might go through. Um, but I loved the, I'm going to pick up the toys, and no, no, don't touch that. And then Picard even has that moment of like, I, I want to yell at you, but I'm not going to yell at you, but you can tell that I'm displeased type of uh, acting moment, which I appreciated, as well as this, I don't know, I... I it, it seems odd that he would go right from you're in your guest quarters to go now you're going to live in my quarters moment. So the whole thing that uh, the whole setup is, is I don't know, it, it's fraught, I guess I will say. Well, because he says there's no way you can do that. Um, and then, you know, we cut right to them being in his, his quarters. So he relented pretty quick. It, I mean, what do, what do you guys think about? This person, uh, Captain Picard, should be in charge of assimilating this human back into uh, the human culture. I think the Enterprise is mostly automated, and Captain Picard is, <laughs> spends his time with whatever passes for a Newton's cradle on his fucking desk most of the time. <laughs> and the counselor takes one whip of this misogynistic little dick, and it's like, you do it. There you go. It's the one time Jono doesn't make any sounds or scream or protest is when he had that one interaction with Picard in sickbay. So I guess we're going off of that. Um, but I also just don't understand why the counselor is not more involved. Uh, even if it is, we want to set up Picard as a father figure, do those in sessions with the counselor, like have the counselor be there to be able to guide this relationship right. growing instead of Jeez. it being, Oh, you have full custody of this person while you know, who is, you know, a former uh, enemy, if he's if he has been assimilated into Tolarian society, it's like, oh, yeah, no, he's got free reign. He's going to live with you. And we'll see how that pans out later. Yeah. And, and in that exchange, when um, she she where Troy passes this off to Picard, they flirt with comedy here in the back and forth between the two. But within that comedy, we get this revelation from Picard, which is going to be a play very majorly in the upcoming episode of family about how when he was a kid he was absolutely devoted to studying because he knew he wanted to be in starfleet and everything else to be damned and he had tunnel vision and he feels like he abandoned his his childhood and maybe that's a reason why he can't connect to children because he never really was a child um and that's some pretty heavy stuff uh not only for what he might be dealing with but again what he's going to be dealing with uh, 
uh, with his brother in an upcoming episode. And it's sort of just tucked into this this lazy flirting with comedy amongst some heavier stuff that they don't really address. They don't unpack it. They're just like, oh, here's something. Uh, chuckles. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you I mean, did that hit you guys at all this when he dropped that? Or do you think that was just throwaway stuff? All I know is that I really lived for his solemn take on you may not be aware of this but i've never been particularly comfortable around children <laughs> it's just that i i i i i will allow that humor into that scene yeah because that's like his you know second defining characteristic that we learned from the first episode of this entire series yeah. i like also that the advice that troy gives him is essentially like meh parenting sucks you're gonna muddle through good luck friend you know which goes back to what you were saying jimmy like a little more hands-on guidance was probably <laughs> called for well if they really wanted to lean into the comedy thing they could have just uh did the whole cyrano trope and you know had a little earpiece in and she's <laughs> guiding him <laughs> during all these things uh and then you know non sequiturs and <laughs> stuff where he didn't quite understand but you know they left the comedy on the floor Tell him his music sucks. That's what all generations say. <laughs> right. Uh, and that is a good segue because the next mm -hmm. scene is uh, back in Jono's room where he's rocking out to some Talarian grooves. Fuck yeah. And of course, old curmudgeon comes in and says, turn off that noise. Right? Hey, can you sing a bit of the Talarian? I'm a that's it. We're not going to take that. And then Picard walks into his quarters and... <laughs> Again, a, an obvious director's choice because there's no way Patrick Stewart would have made the choice of I'm coming in and I don't see a giant hammock <laughs> hanging in the corner of my room. Hammock. A hammock. And he goes to the bathroom. He looks and then he even comes out and he's looking around like, oh, there, <laughs> yes. there you are. Uh, and then we get a little thing where Jono remembers. Like he does he because, you know, that. There's a picture of his family. It's left when uh, John Luke leaves. He looks at it, uh, and not only does he remember, but he remembers in stereo. Before we go, I, I want a, another poll. Before we actually meet Captain Indar, I want to take bets on, did you guys think he was going to be a jerk right away or not? Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, Crusher, Crusher set it up pretty well that like he's got broken ribs, he all you know all of these bones, all these things, and so we are, I think, meant to 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 have those accusations in our head when we're meeting this guy. Well, let's let's be clear, he is an asshole, just a different kind of asshole. Yes, yes, very <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, we cut to the bridge, and we actually do meet uh, Indar. Riker plays the unappreciated host, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Picard probes for answers, uh, and then we get the answer. Indar is his father, and the music lets us know, this is a big deal! <laughs> what do we think about this first introduction to Captain Indar? Yeah, I love the way he flips our expectation on, on its head. And at this point, I was like, as soon as they made that revelation, I was like, oh, maybe there's something we don't know about. Uh, you know, like it definitely gave me pause to think that my preconceived notion of what we were about to see was maybe off. Um, but we also know that people can put on a great face for, you know, the public while being monsters at home. So I wasn't fully convinced yet, but it did give me pause to go, oh, I wonder if we're going to find out something interesting about 
this relationship. Yeah, I, I think the posture of, of a military dad is something that I never trust as a as a uh, a audience member, right? I, I, I think of the stepfather and Terry O'Quinn's great performance there. It's the same it's the same posture and the same kind of I'm fine, are you not fine? Uh, kind of vibe. Uh, so I'm I'm with Kate. I, I know that that can hide some deeply unserious shit. I found myself questioning his statements right the way even though he said it so sincerely about boys will be boys they're going to get into injuries broken arms i immediately was like well this is where this is going to hinge on this episode is going to hinge on this statement whether or not we as the audience member believe what he's saying right we find out picard presses him like here's our concerns dude broken ribs and he has pretty reasonable explanations for him and they do they're not off the cuff, but I mean, in within that scene, as he's, you know, clarifying what happened there, there's very chilling admissions as to what, like, well, yeah, I probably killed his parents. I, I don't know. It's inconsequential to me if I did or not. So I was really drawn into this character and the way this actor portrayed the character, because uh, there was never a point where he was twirling his mustache. Agreed. Yeah, no, it was it was it was almost indignant that you were like, what are you talking about? Like, this is this is how the world works. And we have to be like, well, it doesn't work that way in the Federation. But yeah, right. It was it was fascinating. And I was ready to to uh, see where it progressed. I just wish the episode was more about all these things rather than this relationship with Picard and and uh, and Jono. I wanted to know more about the relationship of Jono and his and his, you know, adoptive father. Right. And one of the things that um, Jerry Taylor, the, one of the co-writers, had said was it was their intention to highlight what they felt was uh, uh, the adoptive parent or a foster parent having just as much claim to a child that they had nurtured and raised as a natural parent. So that was they were actively trying to um, build a case for that mm. side. Um and we can examine, you know, how we feel that landed uh, at the end when we go through the whole, the whole begrudge in this story. So uh, right after this scene with um, Indar and Picard, Picard is then with uh, Crusher and Troy, where he's trying to get advice uh, from them to what he does. And of course, you know, we know we're going to get the scales, right? So Crusher takes the "Don't do it." This is classic. Of course, he has great reasons for why and Troy has equally good uh, reasoning and well, we can't just tear him away from everything that he's known. This is uh, as destructive as even if he was being abused and uh, Picard says, all right, well, I'm gonna do it anyways. I, I, the only thing I wanna mention about this scene is that I, it was um, calling back to me the episode when Data created uh, LOL because that's essentially what's happening there. Where like they were gonna rip Lal away before she was ready to, to go out into the world. She hadn't matured yet, right? And I felt like this was a little bit notes of that where Troy is saying, we can't just, you know, take him without any type of closure, without any type of uh, uh, choice or understanding coming from the individual uh, himself. And so, yeah, I, that, I just was like, hmm, yeah, this feels like we, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting on some of those similar themes here. Right. And then uh, uh, right after that, we cut to the conference room where Indar and Troy uh, are smashing, or at least engage in a very <laughs> intense stare down. 
<laughs> what do you guys think about this heart to heart that Jono and Indar have? in this scene and in the background out of focus Picard <laughs> why, and Troy just standing there with the backs turned not talking I'm just like we can't hear anything we can't hear anything we can't hear anything <laughs> that was a weird choice and this is where I started to trust Endar more because his his meeting with Jono is so pure or, or seems so pure on the you know there's there's no sort of uh under there's no underplay where it's like, oh, he's trying to give him signals to be like, you do the right thing or you're going to be in trouble. You know, there's there's just when when he tells him his father, I, I wasn't allowed to wail. You know, that's an opportunity for him to get really pissed at him. Like, that's our people. That's our custom. How could you allow these people to? And he says, that's OK. I know you were doing it in your heart, you know, like which was a very kind thing for him to do. And I was started. This is when I started to turn uh, towards Endar more. I also think that the alien embrace was oddly touching yeah. uh, for two reasons. One was because it seemed genuine and and, and the love that the two uh, shared was, was palpable. But I also just really liked that it wasn't a hug. Mm -hmm. Like for some reason, I was like, oh, they're just going to hug. This is like they're basically just humans with, you know, prosthetics on their heads which is you know they are but um i just like that it was a weirdly different uh gesture yeah. than we as americans would do like it was that t touching of foreheads that felt just weird enough but also understandable for us as as people and he gives him the choice there too he says you've reached the yeah. age of decision what do you want to do buddy yeah, it was nice. So this is where it really changed for me, too. Like, this is, regardless of the other things Indar might be, he does love this child. Uh, Eric, do you want to start a metal band called Age of Decision? <laughs> I mean, definitely not, because if I was in a metal band called Age of Decision, it's just a bad idea. I don't know what Age of Decision says if it's a 45-year-old white guy. <laughs> like, there's... What decisions have I, if I'm talking about myself, like all those decisions are past the age. <laughs> and if I'm talking about somebody else, then I, why am I talking about their age of decision? No, I right. don't want to be in that metal band, Greg. That'll I'm be sorry. the uh, 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 middle-aged, late, late career uh, concept album that we come out with. <laughs> middle-aged of decision, maybe, you know. <laughs> Uh, all right, so after um, Eric quit his metal band, we cut yeah. to uh, the bridge, and we find out that the Tellarians uh, are a bunch of punks, and they can't stand up to uh, Starfleet because their ships are too small, and the Enterprise is way too big, and their uh, their munitions are, aren't up to par. Uh, and the writers provide us a way out of the war by giving us this Age of Decision thing again, and there's a uh, rite of passage, so he can choose if he wants to. Uh, and it was right here that it's struck me with that whole age of decision thing that the aliens in Star Trek are often written to they have a lot of technology they they can travel through space but they cling to antiquated or at least uh traditions that reach back to antiquity uh mm. it, and their sort of you know high space tech uh, uh, technology, but the humans seem to be very different where they've shed those things. And uh, I don't know if I'm just reading too much into that or if it, it do you guys feel like that that is present or um, or not? Yeah, I think it's the, the Star Trek world as it was first designed to be is the, the Starfleet represents a utopian America, America basically that has shed all of these issues and gotten past them. 
and the people that they meet out in space are still dealing with the same issues that we used to, which is what we now, in the present tense, are still dealing with. So when, when they decided with Next Generation and everything that came after to make Starfleet much less utopian, these differences became much less metaphorical and it, it, it comes across as very colonizer versus colonized as opposed to, uh, it, it's just an interesting difference from the original series to now, uh, it feels like to me. Well, I think you're right, okay. Jimmy, because I, I immediately thought of Rumspringa right which is the yeah. amish rite of passage um where mm. when they're at the age of 18 they get to make the decision of if they're going to stay or they're going to go and there is something about this culture you know like well we i lost my son so i get to take a son you know and and i think you're right that that's peppered throughout the stories um throughout the seasons throughout the throughout the genre itself um, for much the reason that Eric already said. All right, I want to be back in the band. I want to be back in the band. <laughs> I've had a second to think about it. We're, we're going to replace the drummer. He blew up, so you need to in. Yeah, always a problem with the drummers. All right, so we head back to Picard's ready room where Jono learns about uh, his proud history and all the strong women in his his grandmama is a big deal uh, and kind of a warrior herself. And, and we also learn about all the tragedy that has followed his family. And that's all hard for a young man to hear. So uh, there's nothing else to do but, you know, play some racquetball. <laughs> I just want to say that I approve of Picard's outfit in this episode. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I have written down also Kate what do you think about the outfits <laughs> <laughs> Chad Allen as well um, I'm just confused about why racquetball exists in this world but nothing else like there's so many they built up so many other uh, you know sci-fi games that are out there wasn't there another one that like Yar and Worf played on a star base that could have played that game or They've introduced that uh, Picard was a fencer. Like, why wouldn't they do fencing uh, and go back to that, you know, bit? Yeah, I don't know why they any of Any of Tron's games are available at this point, yeah. you've got to think. It right. said space, space racquetball. They, but they racquetball, a... like pickleball now, was in the 90s a very, very big deal. Like, it was, there were racquetball clubs all over. You could take it. I know I could take it as an elective in college. Like, it was everywhere. Um, and yeah. I think this was them playing off of, you know, this is what's cool. Like the kids like racquetball. So let's put it in space <laughs> with weird circles and the ball always makes some weird sci-fi sound. I love that yeah. sound. Yeah. That sound is yes. so yeah. fucking satisfying. And then in cool. the, the 2000s, it was squash. Squash made a comeback. Uh, yep. There were squash courts all through New York and Frazier was playing squash and all that shit. Um, I love that. Uh, there's just an extended, like, it's basically sports. It's like the volleyball scene from Top Gun. Where they're like, all right, let's just, let's just have, uh, you know, five minutes of sports play uh, happening here. Um, but I also, and I also think it might have been the director who put this in because she, there's a shot of her, um, uh, behind the scenes shot of her instructing Chad Allen on how to play racquetball. So I was like, oh, this is pretty cool that she got to put a little bit of her own. Maybe she's a racquetball fan. That might make sense. <laughs> I also think it's it's a cool way, though, 
because it's 360 racquetball, right? Like, it's racquetball, but it's very, like, uh, visceral in terms of it is happening all around you with that sound. I thought that it was a really interesting way to in- to reintroduce the idea of those flashbacks with the sound, with the fury, with the, you know, never-ending uh, barrage of that ball. I just thought that was an interesting way to, to bring that to the forefront. That's a great point, I, I, and it didn't occur to me at all. I think that's spot on. Like, all yeah. that sound and, and, like you said, fury is what triggered the uh, his flashback so intensely. Yeah. Um, yeah. The holodeck was right there, but, you know, all right, racquetball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so Jonah breaks down. Um, also, you know, once again, hearing his memories in stereo, and they head back to uh, uh, Picard's quarters. Um, the memories come back to him again. Uh, it gets pretty intense, and so uh, Picard says, you know what you need? Some underage drinking. So he takes him <laughs> to the board. Uh, and the whole gang's there. Like, we get this uh, Riker. We got uh, Wesley. They sit down. Uh, and instead of underage drinking, we get a blue uh, banana split. And uh, slapstick ensues. What do we think about this scene with, uh, with Jono, for the first time, showing a little bit of humanity? I just wrote down, I wrote down, we are laughing. There was just so much <laughs> frivolity in this. I wish it was actually funny, though. It was just like, oh, <laughs> if you get to go with so the classic, they. make it like, actually funny. Like, these actors were desperate for it to actually be funny, too. They're a little angry, like Jimmy was talking about, <laughs> or like you were talking about earlier, Greg, with yeah. uh, Marina Sertis. These are some angry actors, I'll tell you. So we learned that they don't have spoons there, but they do have slapstick. It's not that funny of a scene. Uh, and then we cut to the to Picard's quarters. We're just now like getting our smiles on. Oh, Jono's going to be okay. He's uh, sleepless in his hammock. <laughs> he gets up and he stabs Picard, which most certainly is a dream sequence. What did you guys think about this? I'm very glad that they had only taught him Talarian uh, anatomy, so he missed any major organs. Uh, but I think it would have been a problem if he ever had to perform surgery on himself, say. <laughs> no, I was very shocked. I had forgotten I had forgotten about this episode through the, you know, passage of time. And felt like you, Jimmy. I was like, oh, we're gonna this is this isn't real. This can't be. This can't be how this episode goes. Uh, for one thing, I knew that Picard lived. So I was like, well, this can't be how it goes down. Uh, but no, he motherfucking stabbed him uh, right in the sternum, uh, which is fortunate, I guess, that it was the sternum, as, as yeah, Eric that's said. What the sternum does. It, it deflects uh, yeah. things into the heart or into the lungs. <laughs> but maybe he didn't, he didn't stab down far enough. <laughs> I love that. When Picard wakes up, the first thing he says is, oh, so this did happen, or it wasn't a dream. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as mentioned, Picard wakes up, oh, this wasn't a dream. And then, on the bridge, the Talarian ships have arrived, the, the additional mm-hmm. ships, uh, to join Indars uh, for their little standoff. Um, and we've seen Riker in this situation before we've seen jonathan frakes play this situation where there's a standoff 
Um, but this is our first time of seeing uh, how Sherman Howard handles it. And what do you guys think about about this scene and particularly how Howard Sherman handles the standoff? I think it reminded me of the the story about the guy on the BBC who went on that show where you can either split the million or keep the million. But if you both decide to keep the million, you get nothing. And the guy turned to the other guy and says, I am deciding to keep the million, but I will give you half of it, it like in the alley after the show. So the only thing you can do is either say you'll keep it and neither of us will get it or say you won't keep it and I'll give you half afterwards. And the guy says, well, what? Because no, I'm picking keep it. So this isn't a negotiation. This is what I am going to do if you, you know, whatever happens, this is what I'm doing. And I feel like that's the negotiation that, uh, you know, Sherman went with. <laughs> He's like, there's one way this ends. You give me my kid because otherwise this is what I am going to do. Mm. And I just kind of, I think that's an effective way to do it if you are going to do it, <laughs> you know. The threat, though, feels a little bit strange where he's like, give me back my son or I'm going to blow up your ship where my son is. Like, I, I, I don't see that as being a viable threat. I don't know. They've already as had well that conversation, the, I, though. Like, when he met him in the, in the conference room, he said, this may be war and you may die. And he says, I'm ready right. to die. Like, Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Was, I thought that was a, a mm. metaphorical, like you may die in the future, but no, you might die in this particular yeah. exchange. No, that's, I agree that's with Kate. That's how I took it was, if you decide that you want to come back with me, then we're all in and we will all die for me trying to get you back, even if that means you will die in the process of me trying to get you back. But if you choose to stay... <laughs> I'm going to kill you too. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I believe that he would have walked away. Like, okay, that breaks yeah. my heart, but it's your decision. But I'll see it. But I'll see you Christmas. <laughs> I yeah. was expecting some kind of something like that to happen. And it didn't. Uh, and l let's put a pin in that uh, as well. Uh, but I thought the, his performance was quite lovely for the same reason that I thought it was lovely earlier. He doesn't play. He doesn't twirl his mustaches. He finds the hero. He's yeah. willing to destroy everything because he he wants his son back. Um, not that I'm on his side, but I love his choice. Uh, all right, so Judo is brought to uh, Picard in sick bay, uh, and we learned that the attack was Judo. Basically, like I felt really guilty about how uh, maybe I was feeling human, and that betrays all my memories and feelings of my dad. And so I thought maybe if I killed you, you'd kill me, and I wouldn't have to deal with any of that stuff. <laughs> Death by cop, suicide by cop. It's so strange. Is this is this writerly logic uh, that you know? <laughs> this is his reason for murder. I think he's a kid and he doesn't have any options, you know. And at some point, you just get overloaded. You know, that's the thing. When 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 people don't have other options, that's when they choose that one. You know. If he truly believes that they're not going to let him go. Right. Which they are. They're not making it his choice. Right. His Endar was the one who was like, you're at the age of decision. You get to choose. The Enterprise has been sorry. You're going back with us. So someone who feels completely trapped, I can imagine in that moment feeling like I have to have some sort of power. Uh, and and I think it's misplaced 
but it's that it's that striking out at the thing that scares him the most which is this other father figure right that, that makes him feel like he is being disrespectful or that he is uh betraying his endar uh so it's not it doesn't make the most sense but i i think i'm with eric that it makes some kind of kid logic in terms of feeling trapped and not not knowing any way of getting out of it yeah and i prisoner logic i i think what you just said kate though was that's a brilliant and interesting plot point that what happened in the show did not do at all and did not even go near that that bit of logic Mm -hmm. that if he would have pointed out you weren't going to allow me a choice and this is the only way I saw of exerting a choice was attacking you. That not only would have been a great logic from my point of view for what for what um, Jono did, but for what Picard does in the next scene, um, because that could have been a, an eye-opening moment of, oh, you're right, I didn't allow you those choices, uh, and now I can see what Eric was saying. Like that's how you didn't see you had a choice, mm. or there wasn't another option. Um, right, but it, they it, just totally didn't go that way. In Act 3 and Act 4, they were trying to say, like, no, this is the only way we can resolve this situation is if we give a choice to Jono. But they didn't tell him that. Right. <laughs> they, right? They, they, that, was, that was their plan all along, uh, or at least the second half of this episode. And then, you know, but not expressing it to him. Like, it's, it's completely his choice and allowing him to, uh, to make that. And, uh, and going along with, like, hey, we will honor your choice no matter what it is. That's not communicated until the end. So I agree with you, Jimmy. It does feel like they should have uh, maybe a counselor who would be uh, you know, <laughs> dealing with that situation might have been able to help. Don't assign her to tactical. Maybe she'll show up and do her job. <laughs> uh, all right. So back on the bridge, uh, Riker and Indar continue their standoff. It oh. looks like everything's going to go uh, sideways until who shows up on the bridge, but Picard uh, with Jono in tow. And Picard says, you know what? It's all my fault. All the stuff that happened is all my fault. I deserve to get stabbed. Uh, I had it coming. I got my comeuppance. So uh, it's cool. I think we should just let him go. And, you know, like, uh, that's it. No, you don't have to be held accountable. What do you guys think about about this monologue? I mean, we know Patrick Stewart always delivers a great uh, great monologue. He's brilliant. Uh, I mean, how did it hit you, Eric? I I think it's similar. Like, Jono and and Sherman, <laughs> Elrond, El, El uh, <laughs> Elrond. <laughs> those two uh, have a similar vibe to what Picard projects here. He's like, I will show you the kind of confidence and surety as I admit that I was wrong and that we can stop this by doing what I should have done earlier. Uh, and that's that's a great thing for all of us to to kind of own. Like, you don't need to be deferent when you apologize. You should own your apology confidently if you really are sorry and wrong. And Picard choosing that tack here is certainly a good strategy when dealing with these people, but it's also very much who he is when he's decided he's wrong. That's a decision. Uh, It's not something you're still worried about when you're like, "I, I guess I'm sorry. No, it's, I did this. I'm very sorry. Here's how we fix it. Did it very well, I thought. I thought up until that very moment, 
that they that that kid was gonna that Jono was gonna decide to go back with the Enterprise. I even thought in the moment when they ended up on the bridge, I was gonna be like, oh, he's gonna be so you know moved by the fact that he's not gonna be killed and see that this is a different culture and he's you know I was I was shocked that they went with the other. Uh, and pleasantly so, actually, because I think that that's a really interesting subject matter and very touchy, but it's very rare that you see the opposite side of that, which is the chosen family dynamic is is what won. Yeah, I think that was a big, bold move that took me by surprise. And I thought it was interesting also in the way it was directed, because I think we were meant to think that as well, like similar to the way that the direction was in Picard's quarters before uh, Jono stabs Picard. It was set up to make us think it was dreamlike. And I think also with this, we all we we, we assume that's going to be the moral of the story. It's like, oh, of course he's going to go with his quote-unquote real family. But the switcheroo uh, is, is very poignant, and I agree. I think I, it was not what I expected, and it felt oddly right in some ways. All right. Yeah. So and that was that was my big question ending for the episode was, you know, we uh, Bacard escorts Jono to the transporter room. They have their forehead hug goodbye. Uh, gloves off. Uh, gloves off. Very moving. Uh, very moving. Yeah. And uh, he's on his way back t- to Indar. Grandparents be damned. And uh, it seems like uh, the panel has fallen on the side of, yeah, that's where he should go. Um, and I'm not sure either way. Um, it's a, a pretty weighty uh, uh, conversation that, you know, is ill-examined in 45 minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it still, it did leave me a little bit hurting in that, like there are real people on the other side who Jean-Luc has just unilaterally made a decision on behalf of the entire Federation <laughs> that this kid goes, you know, there's, there's obviously laws and precedent and procedures that have to be in place for this sort of thing. And, and are being a great father, whatever. There's still other people in consideration that like, I would have at least liked to see like there's a communicate waiting like beeping on Picard's desk and we know mm. okay he's got to answer for some shit like he doesn't just get to do stuff and he's untouchable he's Teflon and it just goes off of him because there's an admiral who's going to be really pissed off that her just discovered grandchild is now again lost um, and that's where I thought maybe they're going to have some kind of Star Trek kind of everything's perfect in that like you know, visitation rights, and Grandma gets to come to to Teleria and see her grandson on, you know, human Christmas, <laughs> which is in the summer on Teleria. So it's awesome because you'll get to go to the beach, too. Uh, and none of that happens, which actually is a pretty bold choice uh, for the writers to be like, nope, he's going back uh, to the chauvinistic planet, and uh, that's where he'll stay. <laughs> yeah, my headcanon has a kind of, like, even though we talk about how he's past the age of decision at 14, the human brain, maybe the Telerian brain is different. The human brain doesn't really fully form until like age 25, right? There's been like that put forth uh, by science, not me, but science. Um, so I, I had this weird headcanon that like he would revisit this. This isn't the final decision. Once he is on his own and maybe he's the captain of his own Telerian ship, 
he might go back and meet his grandmother or, or you know do it but it wouldn't be in this particular moment under this trauma where you know he's he's held on an alien ship in his mind and has to decide do i go with my aliens or do i go with my dad that I, i've known but this other dad that is an alien dad that i also like like i feel like this is a a, a stepping stone in um jono's life not necessarily the end of the story which i guess is true in all stories but particularly true in this one exactly all right let's go around the horn kate uh what do you think about suddenly human I'm so torn by this because there are many things about this episode that I really enjoy and that took me by surprise. And then there's that keening sound that I had to turn my volume down because it was so viscerally upsetting to me. Uh, So I think that I am going to give this, uh, you know, I'm going to give it six and a half. um, Uh, (laughs) uh, I feel like it raised really interesting questions. I think that the performances are all really well done. Um, I think that it's one of the more intriguing villains, quote unquote, that we've met because it's not so clear cut um, what the villainy is besides the villainy of misogyny, which we can definitely ding them for. Plus, sounds like they have some really interesting playground games. The let's break your arm until it really hurts game sounds really fascinating and should be adopted by playgrounds all around the States. Uh, But I, yeah, I think that it's, I don't think that you have to watch this episode in order to fully appreciate the canon of TNG. Uh, But I do think that it's an interesting a side deviation um you know some questionable writing in terms of why does picard have to be the one that you know raises this kid up to write uh but i do think that it asks some interesting questions and again it zigged when i thought it was gonna zag and at the end of the day that's really satisfying for me eric what about you i loved it it's perfect Six heavy metal hammocks. (laughs) It's perfect, but it's a six. All right. Yep. Stand by it. Great. I'm going to go with uh, seven actress protestations. Um, I like this episode. I do think it is interesting. It definitely surprised me more in its construction as well as how it ended up. It was not the typical, you know, morality play of, of you know, humans are great no matter what they do. Um, uh, playing on that utopia stuff we had discussed in here as well. Uh, the performances uh, from both of the co-stars was superb. Uh, I never really you know beyond their introductions that Eric gave us as the, their careers I didn't really think about who they were as actors I, I was just fully bought into their characters and what that meant for the stakes of this show um, agree that we should have had some different constructions around who was counseling and whether Picard maybe was the best choice for this I, I, I have discussed that at length and I don't need to go anymore didn't love that but beyond all of it uh, it was an interesting change of pace for the Star Trek uh, franchise. All right. Uh, I agree with everything I said. I'm going to give it seven Age of Indecision cover songs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're not going to take it. (laughs) Yeah, 
Yes, and mainly uh, for the points that all of you made um, in the way that Kate put it uh, perfectly. It zigged when I thought it was zag. Um, the stabbing I thought was just out of not out of nowhere. It it, it, it there's logic to it, um, and I love that it surprised me. And that's always a breath of fresh air when a show does something, a show that you're very familiar with just utterly surprises you with a, a, a choice. Um, and then him, uh, Jono, going back with Indar. Also, not very TNG, um, because it wasn't a nice little bow. There's a lot of messiness there, uh, and that's kind of cool that it ended messy. So seven for me. Uh, the show made me wet my pants. So I'm going to sign off now, and we'll see you very shortly. At the movies. At the movies. Jono Jeremiah. What was that all about? Why, why was it Jono? No, not Jonah. Well, especially because Jeremiah was a bullfrog, so I got really confused. Right? It was a good friend of mine. <laughs> Thank you so much for riding along with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we continue our mission with the next episode of the fourth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates when episodes are published and some other stuff. You can also follow our various cultural bridge crew on social media. Kate Yeager is at Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Lee Engage is edited by Greg Tito and Jimmy G and sometimes Kate Yeager. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo 97 on Twitter. The music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now for the traveler to re-engage.